0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. In this amazing two-part episode of The Unmistakable Creative, I speak with Andy Dixon, who talks to me all about redemption and reinvention after serving a 27-year prison sentence in the Tennessee prison system.
2: Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at
1: UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together.
0: Uh, thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah. So, you know, I, I came across your story by way of one of our listeners who heard uh, our interview with Joe Loya, and he said, you've got to talk to Andy. He has a story that's just as insane, uh, if not more insane. And so I, when I when I got the brief from him, I said, oh, yeah, I said, I think this is a story we have to tell. Although the ongoing joke, I think with our listeners is going to be that you have to either serve time or, you know, commit some sort of crime in order to get on this show since we've had a steady stream of them. But uh, tell us a a bit about yourself, your background, your story, and and how that has led you to uh, doing the work that you're doing today.
3: Okay, be glad to. Uh, uh, I, I guess the first thing that comes to my mind is what you just said about, you know, people saying that they have to you know, do something illegal or, you know, have this crazy life to get on the show. And, you know, I, 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 you know, I kind of understand that in a way, but I I think what they're really saying is, is that, uh, uh, the people you have on your show, it would seem to me are the people that they really don't get to hear about this kind of stuff because it's not being talked about. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so, you know, it's just you're you're like covering things that uh, should be covered that uh, maybe aren't being covered. Mm-hmm. So I would say, you know, you're you're doing something right there. Okay, <laughs> well, I appreciate it. <laughs> so anyway, with that said, uh, I, I guess uh, I don't know how far you want to go back. Uh,
0: I actually uh, usually to go I... really far back, uh, as far back as your childhood, everything that led up to everything that you're up to today.
3: Well I I guess it, 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 for my story it begins uh at conception I mean you know my I come from a long line of uh people who uh uh felt like you know living outside the law was the only way to live um, my father uh, my grandfather uh just you know on pretty much both sides of my family, uh, were involved in crime, and um, uh, their perspective of themselves would be you know a lot different than what a lot of other people might, you know, think of people that are living that kind of life. I mean, it was like normal, you know, uh, unnormal, normal, I guess is a good way of saying it. Uh, uh some people you know, get up in the morning, they take a shower, they put their suit on, they go to their law firm. Well, in our family, they'd get up and, uh, they'd go out and they'd, uh, run bars, take bars over, steal cars, uh, rob banks, uh, kidnap people. I mean, just, you know, whatever, you know, it's just, uh, uh, a lot of criminal activity, but it was, uh, Uh, family kind of thing, you know, and um, so when I was born into this world, that's kind of where I landed, and um, not everybody in my family was a crook. I mean, my grandmother and uh, it seems like the women were always trying to fight against what the guys were doing, you know, but being women in that time and place, it was basically, you know, just hush up, keep your opinions to yourself, and we'll put the bread on the table and you'll keep the house clean and uh, take care of the kid kind of thing, you know? And so my earliest memory, I guess, is uh, uh, my uh, my mother getting sick and uh, she passed away when I was quite young. And my father was in prison at the time, and uh, he was doing some time. and uh, I stayed with my grandmother, uh, which would be his mother. And she was the only person in my early life that gave me a vision of possibility of doing something different than what my father and uncles were doing and my grandfather. She gave me an early uh, picture to look at of my future other than what was before me. And unfortunately that wouldn't take seed for quite a while. Um, When my father got out of prison, uh, I went to Chicago to live with him. And that was in the late uh, 1950s, I mean, early sixties. And, um, the first time I'd been to Chicago, my mother was still alive. That was in the late 50s. And uh, just going back up there kind of felt familiar and good in a way. But um, <clears throat> my father, he ran uh, different nightclubs uh, during the day. And, of course, he would go out and gather things together, as we used to say it, at night. But uh, I remember being very young and coming into the clubs and uh, seeing the women and uh, hearing the, the laughter and the talk and the cussing and the excitement of the nightclub and you know that that was pretty cool for a kid you know and I was like uh, ganged up by the time I was uh, ten years old I was running with a little street gang because at that age I I knew that to Uh, be recognized, you know, you pretty much ran with a, you know, a neighborhood gang of some sort. And I remember one summer coming to the nightclub with a bloody face and my uncle was out there and he asked me uh, what had happened. I told him that a kid in another gang had uh, uh, knocked me down and took my uh, money. He picks up a a rock, and he gives it to me, and I mean, a pretty big rock. It was, I had a little hand, you know, that age, (laughs) he put that rock in my hand. He said, uh, I want you to go back out there to that park and find that that son of a gun, and uh, uh, when you come back, I want to see blood and hair on that rock, or I'm going to whoop your ass worse than anybody else, and I did. I went back to the park. I found that kid, and uh, I did attack him with the rock, and uh, there were other kids with me and we ran back and the word got back even before I did that, you know, what I'd done. And uh, these guys actually lifted me up on their shoulders and walked me through the club and and were just, you know, celebrating that I just knocked some kids brains out with a rock that was like five years older than me. They thought that was just the greatest thing. But what it did to me, it. it, it printed on me the importance of how violence got you this this love and respect from your family and and the friends that uh, your family had and uh so that set within me um, um, a feeling that I could uh you know get this love and attention just by uh having this spark of violence within me. And a couple of years later, uh, mainly because of who my father and my uncles were, uh, the gang on the north side of Chicago, North Siders, they kind of like let me be a little bit more involved than normal for a 12-year-old. And there was a big gang fight scheduled for the park. And uh, it was back then they had like rules, you know, (laughs) they would get together and they would say, okay, we're going to have this fight in the park, but here are the rules. We're all agreeing that we're going to go fist. We're not going to have knives. We're not going to have chains. We're not going to have guns. We're going to meet out there and we're going to fight it out with fist. Of course, people always cheated. so. There would always be somebody designated to bring knives and guns just in case the other side did. Then that person could just dis- distribute those knives and guns and fight it out. And being 12, I was given this sack. And uh I don't know if you still remember the old uh, paper grocery sacks. Mm-hmm. That's what it was, is an old paper grocery sack. And it had some pistols some knives and, and, and it was, you know, kind of heavy for a kid my age. And uh, I was left at the back gate of the park and I was told to stay there. And then if I got a signal and signals were these different pitch whistles that we used to do and, um, um, I was to wait and if the whistle sounded and I was to come running and empty out the bag and people would grab what they could grab off of the ground and get busy with it. And so I'm standing there with a couple other young kids and uh, we're all considered too young to go out and fist fight with these 17, 18 year olds, you know, cause like I said, I was 12. And, uh, what no one counted on was these, this other gang coming around the back, which is what they did. They didn't come in from their side of the street. We figured they'd come in from since, you know, they lived, uh, Farther south than from where we were in Chicago We was expecting them to come up from the south and not over from the uh, uh from the west heading east so but that's the way they came in and the guy that was leading them he steps up toward me and asks me what I have in the sack and I was scared to death and um I told him it didn't matter what I had in the sack and um he started to walk toward me and I pulled a gun out of the sack and I uh, shot him and, um, uh, he died and I was 12 years old when that happened. And, um, I remember my family gathering around me and, uh, the police were like, you know, really tearing up the neighborhood, trying to find out, you know, who, who did it and causing a lot of problems. And, it was decided that uh, I would uh, turn myself in and have lawyers and whatnot, and that, uh, you know, I would I would take my pinch. And so uh, I went forward and uh, went to uh, juvenile court, uh, pled guilty to the case, and I was uh, kind of got, according uh, to my uncles and everybody else, they were really angry because— They had actually thought they had this thing fixed to where I would uh, spend like a month or two in juvie and then I'd be out. But uh, I went to the Audi home and uh, it was during a time when uh, they were kind of fed up with the violence up there. And they were like saying, you know, got to start doing something with these crazy kids. And so they decided that uh, I would be sent to reform school until I was 21. And, um, of course it kind of angered a lot of people that it went down that way. But what happened was, uh, I did go to reform school, but I didn't stay there. I mean, I kept running off. They couldn't keep, (laughs) they really couldn't keep me there. I would just continually run off and I'd have friends that I could, you know, call and they'd come and meet me and pick me up and carry me back to the city. And uh, a lot of times my father would give me money and send me Down to Miami, Florida, where we had family down there, or he'd send me to Tennessee, you know, different places to hide out. But it seems like I'd always get into something wherever I went, I'd get into something. I'd steal cars and rob places, get caught, and then they'd go, Oh, you know, they need you back up in Illinois, you know, and I'd get sent back to Illinois. And that was like, uh, that went on for like five years. And When I was 17, uh, they had created a program, and it was called uh, 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 something zero. I forgot. Now, what was it? The idea was is that you'd start ground zero. That's what it was. That that was before they used ground zero as a term for nuclear explosions or whatever. This was... uh, supposed to be like you start over at zero like you don't have a bad record, no one's to know what you did and you get a fresh start and so um, uh, I was looking forward to that because I was sick of reform school life. That's a violent life too you know for kids uh, you had uh, administrators there that uh, were were just uh, sadist. You know, I mean, these people, they got off on beating kids. Some of them got off on raping kids. You know, they just, uh, you had different kind of people there, man. They were just crazy. And uh, then kids, you know, would, you know, beat up each other because uh, that's just the way it was. And I remember when I first got to reform school, I took some soda pops and put them in a bag and beat a kid half to death with it because he, you know, got out of pocket with me up in there. But, you know, that's how you build your rep in these places and people leave you alone, you know. So you learn that early on. But uh, I was excited about this ground zero thing, you know. And so I got uh, out of reform school legally and uh, I was going to go to high school. I'd never been to high school. I'd always, you know, been in reform school. So I was excited about going to high school and I was told that nobody there, nobody not even the principal would know my past and I would just get a fresh start. And I was real excited about that. And, uh, I was staying with my father. He had a girlfriend and she had, you know, was going to help me, you know, get all together and everything. We went out shopping, got some nice clothes, you know, got all together for high school. And I remember my first day, course at that age i i, I went in it was going to be my last, my first and last year of high school so um i remember going in and um uh started walking down the hallway to find my locker and it's like moses parted the red sea all these kids like moved out of my way you know and i knew right then and there that you know something went right and i went to my locker and everybody's just like you know, that they were afraid of me. And I went to the dining room and uh, sat down. <laughs> this little nerdy kid, I'll never forget him, His buck tooth, more glasses. and He come over and he asked me if he could sit down with me. I said, sure, go ahead and get, grab a seat. And so he sat there real quiet for the longest. And then finally he said, can I ask you a question? I said, yeah, sure. Why did you kill your whole family? <laughs> I said, what? He said, why did you kill your whole family? I said, who told you that? He said, that's what they're saying around here. They say that you just come from a, a, a kid prison and that you were there for, like, killing your whole family in the middle of the night. I said, no, it's crazy. I didn't do that. And they said, well, man, that's what they're telling us, that you're a nut. <laughs> so I <laughs> just this kid was like my first friend, you know. And it seemed like these nerdy kids around there were like my friends. And um, um, I kind of, in a way, looked after them, you know. And I think they they sensed that or something because they hung out with me and, and no one bothered them anymore. And then when I heard their stories, they had been like humiliated through high school. So I kind of had a kinship toward them because, you know, I, I knew what it was like to be— uh, terribly, you know, so I didn't mind sticking up for them and running people off that were trying to mess with them. And, um, so that was my high school experience and, and I kind of felt a little betrayed, you know, and, um, after high school, I went into the military for a while. And then after that, I I kind of drifted around a little bit, trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life, and. Um, couldn't find anything that made me feel good like it did when I was working with my family. So um, I got really deeply involved in um, uh, the uh, auto parts business. I guess you could call it. We would uh, take cars out of the south and bring them north, and cars out of the north and take them south. And um, I had a unique position at that time because i had very strong ties with uh, people that were members of the irish mob and the italian mob but also i had strong ties with people in the south that were members of uh, a thing called dixieland mafia so i you know i knew all these guys i was probably one of the only guys around at that time that had this connection to all three groups and so uh it was very hard for me when they started fighting each other over control of uh, this large business. And uh, that was called a, a war. And that war broke out in the 70s. And a lot of people got hurt. Uh, well, they got killed. A lot of people got killed. You know, a lot of Italians, a lot of Irish, and a lot of. Uh, uh, hillbillies, you know, people that were members of the Dixieland Mafia a lot of times up north just straight out referred to as hillbillies. And uh, so uh, it, it got ugly. And um, I had an uncle who uh, realized my situation of being kind of tight with everybody also put me at the crosshairs of everybody. And, you know, everybody was, everybody liked me, but at the same time, you know everybody wanted me kinda of dead too, so uh, it it was decided that uh, I was gonna be kind like a bad guy for a while and run around the country and collect money from uh, dirty bookstores and uh, uh dance halls and uh, strip clubs that were owned by uh, my uncle's people, and that was my job for. A couple years there, just I'd go down to Florida, Arizona, New Mexico, California, even out in places like Nebraska, Tennessee, uh, Arkansas. I just went all over the country to where these places were located and just go in and uh, make collections and bring all that cash back to Chicago. And um, I did that, and it was fun. You know, I enjoyed doing it. There was no violence involved everybody always paid you know no one ever said no when you went there they already had it ready and just gave it to you and you would go by uh twice a year to these places but there were so many of them that you just kept rolling and um that all came to an end down in Texas when um I had probably about 750,000 dollars I guess it was and I was uh, told to hang tight because the fighting was so bad in Chicago that the FBI and uh, all the big, heavy uh, law enforcement agencies were, like, snooping right up everybody's butt, man, and giving everybody trouble, you know? So I was told just to hang out where I was, take care of the money, and uh, they would call me and tell me when to bring it in. And... uh, a most unfortunate uh, thing happened. Uh, these, uh, I went to a friend and I told him, you know, I was going to bury it out there on his land just for a while in a, you know, a big cooler. And uh, <laughs> his stepson and his stepson's friend saw us bury it. And right after we buried it, they dug it up and uh, went out and bought cars and, Went on a spending spree and got caught by the cops, and the cops confiscated the money. And uh, there I am, owing 700 plus. And um, because of my uncle and everybody else, they, they gave me a year to pay it back. And so I got busy. I was like a crazy person. I was running around, robbing everything that wasn't nailed down, trying to get that money up and i did raise quite a bit but i was still like 280 close to 300 shy and so we went down to tennessee and uh did this kidnapping and tried to raise about that much money somewhere between 250,000 to 300,000 and uh i already had a a good lead on another 100 grand so we were trying to put all the money together and i got caught And uh, went to court and got sentenced to prison, and that was in uh, 1978. And entered prison in 1978, Uh, not a changed person at all. I mean, you know, i still the same crazy person I'd always been. I got in prison and quickly developed, you know, my reputation, you know, by— Attacking other prisoners, stabbing them, whatever it took, you know. Uh, Got in there and started my own little thing there with different guys, you know, little gangs and stuff to run some drugs and other stuff inside. And um, that was my life. And um, one of the things that always stuck out in my mind was uh, when I was out stealing and robbing and doing all the things I did, And I mean, there were just so many things I did that you just can't even, I mean, it'd take a hundred shows to tell it all, you know, (laughs) but uh, there's just so many things. I mean, every day was something, you know, so, um, but I can remember different times, you know, seeing, a. A guy about my own age, which at that time would have been around 26, 27. And I could see these guys with their girlfriends or their wives. And I used to think, man, they don't have a clue how lucky they are to be living that kind of life, you know. Uh, Basically, you know, daydreaming about what it would be like to be square, you know. Mm -hmm. And um course you quickly push that out of your mind and you and do the job that you're there to do and um so you know and i never i never did uh never did anything uh for humanity or for myself you know i just was a taker and um of course you know it's all wrapped up in a nice package that you're that you believe you know like the biggest mob is the government you know they're 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 a big mob. You don't ever go against them because you can't beat them. They kill better than you kill. They steal better than you steal. So you can't, you can't go up against the government. They're just too mean, you know? So I bought into all that and believed it. And, um, so in prison, you know, I was just, you know, why change? Right. I'm just, uh, still crazy and wild. And, um,
2: Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.
3: I met this uh, brother who was uh, Dominican, and I was raised, I guess you can say Catholic. I mean the belief that we had, I guess we'd go to mass on Sunday and go out and do what God knows what on Monday. Right. But, um, as a young fellow and growing up, that's the only religion I ever knew other than when I was with my grandmother, she went to this little church, but, uh, this guy that I met in prison, he would come in twice a week and he was, uh, uh He was a good guy, you know. He he was a Dominican, and uh, he always used to come and ask us to go to uh, Eucharistic service on Friday, and he always tried to get us to go to Mass on Sunday because there would be a priest come up from Memphis, Tennessee. Of course, we always turned him down. And uh, one time he come out on the yard and was out there drinking hooch. He come out there and he wanted to talk for a bit because he'd always come and talk to us and um, (laughs) he wanted to know what it uh, what that stuff tasted like so we gave him a taste and he was like oh wow this is stronger than I could even imagine he said this is this insane how do y'all make this and kind of gave him a recipe and uh, again he kept asking and finally one day you know I just started hanging out over there with him a little bit and going to those services and uh, he asked me what I'd been reading. I said, I don't know, the usual, you know, just junk, you know, cowboy books and stuff like that. He said, well, let you try reading this one. He said, I've heard you talk about your years in crime and all the wars and stuff with the crime and your time in the Army and all that. He said, you might relate to this. So I took this book, and it was... Uh, a book about Saint Francis of Assisi. And uh it was pretty good. It was a good book actually. And um I remember after reading that, he uh turned me on a couple more books and I read those. Uh before you know it, this guy <laughs> he had me reading Martin Luther King, he had me reading Gandhi and uh I was just reading all these different books and these guys and I guess the one that really got me more than anybody was uh, a little guy named Techno Han. I don't know if you're familiar with him or not, but, uh, it's a little Buddhist guy from Vietnam and, uh, I was reading his book and, uh, I just sort of got to wondering, you know, could I, you know, could I make those kind of changes in my life, you know? And, um, of course in the bible you have all these great inspirational stories that jesus talks about you know if you leave out all the other stuff that everybody else wrote just stick to what he had to say he had a lot of good stuff to say and so uh one day uh brother curwin who later on became a priest he's now father curwin down in texas and um he asked me you know he said um you know, one thing I've always wondered about you, and, and hope you don't mind if I ask. I go, no. You know, we're, by now we're—I consider him a friend. You know, I said, no, boy, what's up? He said, you know, you told me those stories about looking at other people and wishing you could be square and all that. He said, how come you never made the change? I said, well, I didn't make the change because I—I I, can't. He says, "Oh, okay, that makes sense. Then you can't, right?" I said, "Yeah, that's right." He said, "Well, you're right. You can't. You're always going to be a crazy person, running around hurting people when you feel like it. I guess because you really can't change." And then that was that. You know, I went back to my cell, and then that ate on me for weeks. You know, I laid around thinking about that. You can't change. You know, if you can't, you can't, and just kept bugging me, you know, and and finally it bugged me so much I started getting angry, and I was like, you know, what the hell does he mean I can't? You know, I can do pretty much any damn thing I want to do. What the hell does he mean I can't? And then um, I just kept reading, you know, filling my mind with this idea of peace, inner peace, peace. something outside of yourself and inside yourself all at the same time, you know? And I just kept thinking about it. And, um, uh, there'd been this real bad killing up in Brushy Mountain. Uh, a couple of guys had sold out of their rooms and, uh, there was a turf war between black inmates and white inmates over drug trade. And these guys, uh, white guys, they'd all got pistols and they cut out of their cells. And, uh, they uh, shot and killed like five black guys while they were still in their cell. And um, they shipped a lot of people down to Fort Pillow. And Fort Pillow was like 90% black and 10% white. And I'm a white guy, so it wasn't faring well for us down there. So we had decided on the yard that if we were going to go down, we'd go down on our feet anyway. So we started getting our weapons together and. And I just had this thought, you know that you know I'm gonna die pretty pretty much today is my last day, and I thought, well, you know what, if I am gonna die today, I'd like to die having just for a few hours, if not at all, being a nice guy, being a good person, so I just made a decision that uh kind of like chief joseph you know i'll fight no more i'm not gonna i'm not gonna be a violent person ever again i'm i'm done if i die in an hour i die if i live an hour i live whatever the case may be i'm not gonna i'm not gonna fight anymore i'm I'm done I'm, i'm through and um i went and told my guys i said uh Hope you don't feel like I'm gonna abandon you guys or anything, but I'm done. I'm not fighting no more. And um uh, they thought I was nuts, you know. And uh but I didn't. I threw my weapons away. I didn't even carry a knife, I didn't even wear a vest. You know, you can make a in prison you can take magazines and create little pockets where you can like put these magazines and make like a breastplate and a back plate and an underarm plate where if somebody comes up and sticks you, you got something to kind of hold that knife back a little bit. I even got rid of that. I just was done. And, um, I didn't die that day. I didn't die that week. No, I didn't die that month. I didn't even die that year. It was like, I was, I don't know, protected by something that I couldn't even see. And, uh, Nobody even spoke ill to me. I mean, no one would come at me, and it it was just great. I spent all my time reading, and meantime, all my friends are like thinking, "What's this guy doing?" And they were all going, "Oh, he's—we got to stick close to him. He's got some hell of a scam going here. He's up to something. Let's stick to him, find out what he's up to. He ain't a dummy. He's up to something." So I, you know, I just started getting them to read what I was reading. And uh, we started holding meetings out on the yard where we would discuss uh, meditation and uh, ideals of uh, loving people instead of hating people and helping people instead of hurting people. And uh, the thing that I like most that I shared with guys is uh, Technohan's vision of being a flower growing where you're planting. You know, you don't have to be a prisoner unless you choose to be a prisoner. No matter what your confinement, you can be free wherever you are. And uh, he was right about that. And I was beginning to experience a freedom inside that I'd never experienced outside. And I was uh, nine years in to my sentence at that time when I made this change in my life. And I just kept looking around to see who I could help or how I could help. And um, I remember about that time the AIDS epidemic had broken out and people were scared. They didn't have information. They were trying to figure out, you know, what was going on. Was the government trying to kill everybody? Or what Because it seemed like it was going after uh, uh, druggies, gay people, and anybody living on the fringe. You know, it was like after them or something. And so there was this huge lack of information, and uh, guys in prison were getting sick. They were dying. Some of them were gay. Most of them were gay, but some of them weren't, you know, and we, no one could figure out what the hell was going on. And so we reached out. We got information from the health department. We bugged the crap out of them until finally they came in and gave us all the information they had, <clears throat> and then we started teaching classes. We tried to get condoms in prison, but that was like asking for a uh, uh, million dollars from a poor person. They, they, they ain't coming off of that, and uh, they said, they'll just have to stop doing what they're doing. I said, man, these people can't even control, you know, any basic behavior they have. They 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 just don't have that ability, you know. They need something more until they can— grow up enough to, to be more uh, responsible or something. And uh, they, of course, they wouldn't do it, so we just started teaching classes and trying to teach people how to be proactive in uh, their health. Uh, the main thing that we were concerned about after getting information out to the gay prisoners was to get information out to people that were using tattoos and doing drugs Cause a lot of the people that were doing intravenous drugs and, uh, making tattoos were getting sick. And a lot of them were getting sick with hepatitis uh, C and, uh, and AIDS also. So it hit prison pretty hard. And, uh, so I was able to be on the forefront of that and try to help save lives. And I believe we did. I believe we were able to save some lives in there. And, uh, I felt that need to take that a little further, so I transferred from where I was to prison in uh, West Tennessee, and I went to uh, Nashville where they built a brand-new medical facility up there for people with physical ailments and mental health issues. And I went up there on staff, and being up there it was great because I was able to uh, help the sick and work with people. And it really felt great after all those years of being such an asshole to finally be able to help people. And, um, that's what I did. I, I would, uh, spend my time helping the, the, the other prisoners. I was, a inmate advisor, uh, help them when they got disciplinary problems and pretty much had to run to the prison, you know, could go pretty much anywhere. By then I had like, uh, 19 years in. And, um, uh, uh, remember one day, uh, after about 21 years in, I was in the band room and, uh, I saw this, uh, you always notice anything out of the normal or new. And I saw this woman walk by with a unit manager. and I thought was well, probably about the most beautiful woman I believe I've ever seen. <laughs> and, uh, I didn't know it at the time, but uh, I was going I wound up marrying that woman. <laughs> and she was something else. She was in there for a uh, 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 doing a practicum she was already a master's degree in uh, education, and she went back to school to get a master's degree in uh, social work because she wanted to be a counselor, and uh, she'd gone through a lot of her own uh healing. And uh, from codependency issues, and you know a couple bad marriages, and um, of course I didn't know all this at the time. But uh, I met her inside, and we became really friends. You know, just really enjoyed talking to each other and each other's company. And uh, head of the psychology department there actually introduced us because he and I had become friends. And um, the way he and I became friends was he had these ideals for programs and he wanted me to come with him and and help him run these programs to sort of give him legitimacy with the guys that he was trying to help. And I liked the ideal of the programs that he was putting together because they were teaching guys how to dig deep and find some human light with than themselves, you know, and and then let that light kind of grow on out and try to forgive themselves for the things that they have done and and learn to be better people. and uh, it all centered around a, a therapy, something I think it's like called uh, cognitive therapy, you know, getting people to really think about things because so many people just you know they' they're always on automatic. they don't they don't think things through, they just react or act. And so I was glad to help him with those programs, and um, uh, they were good, and a lot of a lot of men got a lot of help out of that. And um, so he introduced me to uh, Linda, and excuse me, and um, I'd been working under the assumption for quite a while that I had life with parole, and I was working toward that goal of getting out in 1998. And um about that time I, I noticed that because of Linda and my friendship, uh prison is like this huge gossip mill and all this gossip was going and it wasn't true, but it was still pretty ugly. And um I was telling Linda, this is getting uglier by the minute, you know, we're gonna have to you know, you know, you if you, you know, wanna get your practicum and not get kicked out of your school, you might wanna consider wrapping this thing up as quick as you can, leaving because these people in here will try to set you up and they really will, the administration and the, uh, prisoners too. They get this jealousy thing going. They'll try to, you know, really, uh, set you up and, and, and make, make you look like a bad person and, you know, really run you through the ringer. And, uh, so, uh, she decided that that was a good course. And so she left. But before she left, you know, we really had a great time. You know, we uh, would—she would go up to the medical wards with me and uh, just give comfort, you know, to the guys that were up there that were dying. A lot of guys up there had cancers, and uh, a lot of them had liver problems. And uh, one of the guys that I knew, uh, James Earl Ray—I don't know if you know who that is. Well, you probably do, you're into— radio and everything this guy was uh accused of killing martin luther king uh he was up there and i took linda over to meet him and uh, he was dying at the time and uh, i remember linda asked me did i think that he did it and i was you know you know positive that and in my thought that, that he did not do it you know i'd known the guy for a long time and you know his story never changed. He was always right on where he was at. And I remember pushing him in his wheelchair and up into a meeting where a talk show host brought Dexter King in to meet uh, James Earl Ray. And Dexter King looked at him and he says, uh, did uh, did you uh, kill my father? And James looked him right in the eye and said, no, sir. I." I did not kill your father, and I wasn't involved in the killing of your father. And Dexter King told him, he said, you know, I believe you and my family believes you, and uh, we're going to try to find out, you know, who actually did this. And James was like, well, I hope you do, you know. And I remember pushing that guy back to his cell, helping him get in his bed, and I'd known that guy for years. And I never seen him crack. And he just started crying. And I'm like, are you all right, James? And he's like, I am now. And I said, well, I'm glad. And the reason he was crying was he was happy. You know, he, he knew that even though he was dying, that he felt that he knew that, uh, People wasn't going to just let that go. That they keep digging until they eventually found out, you know, who really killed Dr. King. And you know, to me, that's not the actions of a guilty man. And not long after that, he did die, passed away. And um, you know, you meet a lot of characters in there, you know, and I guess James Earl Ray was one of those characters. And um, you know, people have their opinions, you know, and. I've seen some some <laughs> one documentary where this guy was trying to. It was like he was speaking for James Earl Ray or something, you know, about his thoughts and motivations. And the guy clearly didn't know the guy. <laughs> but uh, I guess people do what they got to do to get their dollar in. You know what I mean? But uh, that's another story, I guess they say. Mm-hmm. But uh, my wife. uh. uh She left and uh, went and uh, finished her education, and I was getting ready to come up for parole in uh, 98, and there was this guy there that had, uh, I guess, a crush or something on my wife, you know, and she never gave him time of the day, and when he found out I was going up for parole, he contacted the judge. This is one of the people within the administration, and... He was complaining and saying, you know, this guy doesn't need to get parole. You know, he's a a bad guy. He's a con, all that. And the judge says, well, he ain't supposed to get out on parole. I sentenced him to life without parole. So just like that, you know, they canceled my parole date. And they said that I was doing life without parole. And then uh, on top of all of that, they said that uh, my wife and I couldn't get married that uh, because I had life now without parole, there was no sense in granting me the right to get get married. And it was just a crazy time. You know, uh, if it hadn't been for my inner peace, I think I would have just went nuts because the inner peace I had allowed me to just to say, you know, that's what they say. But, you know, I have this this knowing, this sense that, you know, I'm I'm, I'm getting out. I don't know how it's going to happen, but I'm going to get out you know, it's going to be interesting to see how the universe unfolds this for me because I knew it would happen. And uh, this lawyer came into our lives, and Linda made arrangements with him to to, to uh, pay him, you know, at a, at a very good discounted rate. And he was a great guy, and he got in there and fought like a champion. And uh, first thing he did was he was able to get— Get it okay for Linda and I to be able to see each other and to finally get married. But for two years, we were not even able—we couldn't even see each other. We had to rely on these very, 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 very expensive phone calls to stay in touch with each other. And uh, and those phone calls—my goodness—we talk about ripping off families of prisoners. These things are outrageous. You know, you could spend as much as a hundred bucks for a thirty-minute phone call. You know what I mean? Can you imagine that? So it was just nuts. and um, But uh, we finally won the right to get married, and uh, they transferred me out to Brushy Mountain, East Tennessee, to the Morgan County Annex. And um, Linda and I got married, and that was a great day. In the meantime, my legal case was going through the courts. Seems like every time we went to court, we would lose. And we finally wound up in the Tennessee Supreme Court they agreed to hear the case. And uh, I remember one day I got a message, uh, your lawyer wants you to call him. And I knew we were waiting for the decision to come down because they'd already had the oral argument before the, before the Tennessee Supreme Court. And I, asked, I called my lawyer and he said, how you doing today? I said, well, I'm doing okay. Another day in prison. Everything's all right. He says, well, uh, are you sitting down? And I said, no, nah, I can't. The cord on the phone won't reach to the floor. He said, well, you might want to think about trying to get you a seat. I said, well, there's a wall here. I'll lean against the wall. How's that? <laughs> he said, well, the decision's in. It was a unanimous decision. I said, wow. I said, well, how'd it go? He said, you're coming home, son. They agreed unanimously that you had an illegal sentence. So, I mean, I was like, whoa, Take, talking about taking bricks off your back, you know what I mean? So, the Tennessee Supreme Court, by unanimous decision, decided that I had a new legal sentence. I'd like to say I came home the next day, but courts, being what they are, took two more years before I finally got out. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's it's nuts. But uh, in 2005, I got out after 27 years. and. um uh, when I got out, it was like a mad rush, kind of like to catch up, you know, uh, my wife was teaching school and, uh, I started driving for a living. I started out driving a van hauling transmission parts. And then I started, uh, uh, driving trucks and then I bought a couple of trucks and had a little truck in business. And it would, you know, it was like, chicken today feathers tomorrow you know one week you do really good next week you wouldn't do so good and but you know we were paying bills and um i remember linda and i we spend a lot of time working hard during the day but we'd always lay down at night and we would you know discuss our day you know i'd say how was your day and what happened and she would tell me and She'd ask about my day, and I'd tell her how it went, and we'd just have that ever you know that was our conversation every night, just uh, talking about our day and just letting everything kind of slide off, you know and <clears throat> during these conversations that we kept thinking about these uh, children of uh, people in prison, you know I mean. All the years that I was in there, I'd see these little kids, seven, eight years old, come to visit their moms, or their dads, rather, and uh, I'm sure they were going to visit their moms, too, because there was a lot of women locked up, but, you know, these kids, ten years later, they'd be walking the yard out there, you know, and they'd have an uncle and a cousin on the same cell block, and I just realized, you know, how generational this thing was. I mean, it was generational for me. My family had all been in prison. And I just thought, you know, this is insane that kids are growing up, falling parents to prison, and the incarceration rate is like maddening. It's, you know, it had, it had hit 2 million people at that time. And I'm like, Christ. And that's just the number of people that were in. That wouldn't even count from the ones that had been in and got out and that we're on parole, I mean, you know, the numbers are just staggering how many people have been locked up or have come in contact with this system. And then we got to figuring out, you know, things like uh, in some states they were actually planning prison beds based on the number of children that the currently incarcerated had because they knew that was a good indicator of how many prison beds they would need in the future because they knew these kids were going to grow up, commit crimes, and come to prison. And so, my question was, what the fuck? I mean, if we know this, why aren't we doing something? Why aren't we sitting back on our freaking hands, you know? Why is somebody not doing something? And so, uh, I, it was just driving me crazy. And I was on a run and I went out to, uh, San Francisco and, uh, it was a long drive out there, and I thought, you know, it'd be great to have somebody to talk to on the way back, so I got on rideshare, and I offered a ride to anybody that wanted to go back east, and this guy calls up. He's a <clears throat> he's a, a documentary filmmaker and uh, uh, kind of an eccentric kind of guy, and uh, he doesn't like to fly, and he was out in, on the west coast uh, for a conference, and the conference was over, and he didn't want to drive a uh, ride a Greyhound bus back to New York City, and he was trying to get as far east as he could go. <clears throat> I told him I was going to Tennessee. He could, you know, I'd give him a ride that far. So I meet this guy, and uh, uh, we're going down the road, and we're talking a lot. And he gets to talking about the Kennedy assassination and his fascination with this stuff. And before I know it, I'm talking about James Earl Ray, and and this guy's like. Well, wait a minute. You know, he says, How do you know all this? <laughs> and I'm thinking, Wait a minute. Now, how am I going to tell this guy that I just, you know, that I spent 27 years in prison? And here we are out on the road. This guy is going to freak plumb the fuck out, you know? I mean, can you imagine being in a car with somebody like that, right? And so I just told him, I said, Look, you've been riding with me for about nine hours now. So I guess you feel like you kind of know me and you know I'm a good person. I'm not going to, do anything crazy but you know i I know this because i was in prison for 27 years and i knew this guy well his reaction blew me away because he starts breaking out all this recording equipment he's like man i gotta get this i gotta get this you know and he's like you know he had a thousand questions i guess you could say he was my first interviewer (laughs) but he's a great guy his name is geo geller and so through meeting him um I get a phone call probably about six months later, and he's wanting me to come to New York. And he says, I got this friend that has this thing, it's called a 140 conference, and I'd love for you to come up here and he'd like, <laughs> like he'd like to meet you. I'm like, Oh, okay. Yeah, that sounds interesting. So I says to Linda, I says, you know, should I do this? And she's like, Well, what do you feel? I said, Well, he seems to think it's a good place to get the story out. Maybe we could talk about these kids and get people interested in trying to help them. He said, well, you know, that's, she said, well, you know, if you felt that way, you need to go. So I packed my old car up and I drove up to New York and, uh, met Gio again. And, uh, he has an apartment over in Manhattan and, uh, over on ninth Avenue there. And so, um uh, I stayed with him, and uh, the next day, he took me to uh, <clears throat> a 140 meeting. And there were a lot of people there. I mean, places like packed. And at that time, I'd been out of prison hmm, probably about five years, I guess, five or six years. And um, so I was still—and even today, you know, I, a bit large crowds, you know, I tend to try to find a wall, you know. It's just habit, I guess you'd say. You know, you want to kind of stick to walls or whatever. But uh, I I sit all the way in the back. You know, I'm a back row setter. Even in church, I like to grab the back pew. So anyway, uh, I'm sitting all the way in the back, and and I'm hearing all these interesting people talk about all this interesting technology that I don't know anything about. I mean, I got like a phone, you know, the simple phone. I, I, that's me. I got this simple phone. I, I, and uh, the computer was very intimidating to me when I got out. Uh, I told my wife, I said, you know, I thought a computer was like a uh, typewriter hooked up to a TV, you know, I just, <laughs> you know it just, it, that's how it looked, you know? And I'm like, and she very lovingly just stuck with me and showed me all these things about the computer. And I was just, you know, it was a lot to take in because I just had not seen one, cell phones. I mean, these things were so weird. It was like Star Trek had come alive or something, you know, with the flip phone and all that. It was just really weird getting used to this technology. <clears throat> and uh, Geo had already told me about this thing called Twitter. And so Twitter was kind of new at the time and it was really hot and sexy, I guess. And a lot of people were into it and, so he showed me how to start a Twitter account, and I had like five friends or something like that, or or you know five followers, I guess you call it. And so it was kind of kind of strange, you know, this technology. And um, so anyway, I'm at this 140 conference, and <clears throat> and I'm hearing all these interesting people talk, and uh, this guy named Jeff Pulver was kind of like leading the, the discussion. And uh, Gio had already told me that, you know, that was his friend. And so uh, things are about to wrap up, and Jeff gets up on the stage, and he says, uh, for all you people at State, he said, I think you're going to have a treat tonight. He says, uh, there's a guy in the audience that's got this really incredible story that I'd like to share with you all, if we can get him to come up here. He said, I'm going to go over and see if I can get him to come up here and tell this great story. I'm thinking, wow, this is going to be cool. We've got somebody who's going to tell a cool story. And he starts walking toward me, and I'm like, holy shit, he's he's coming toward me. No, 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 Fuck no, fuck no, fuck no, 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 not me, not me, not me. And he comes on, he goes, hey, Andy, you want to tell your story? And I'm like on the spot now, you know. I'm like, I don't know. You know, I've just had never spoken in front of people. And I was like nervous. And I'm like, well, yeah, sure, why not, you know. And so I get up, and I go up on the stage, and Geo's there, so he helps out a lot. He kind of breaks the ice and tells the crowd how we met, and we get to talking. And so I'm talking with all these people, and I'm telling them about my life, and I start telling them about these kids and how important I think it is to try to help them. And um, somebody asked me a question, you know, I said, well, what do you think about all this new technology, and especially Twitter? And I told him, I said, well, you know, I've been kind of looking at Twitter for a while, uh, I don't know, a week or two, three weeks, a month, whatever it was at that time. And the thing that stuck out to me was like, it seemed like the whole thing was about getting followers and about having friends that, that you hang out with, kind of like in this uh, 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 computer space, you know? So, um I told him, I said, you know, when I look at that, you know, I kind of look at it as like the prison yard. You know, if your word is good and everybody knows that your word is good, then a lot of people will want to be around you. They'll want to follow you and be a part of your clique. But if your word is not any good, then you're kind of going to wind up over here in uh, Twitter jail or whatever, you know. And they, they seem to resonate with that description of twitter i guess so i remember after that i had like 300 friends and then i had like uh people quoting me all over twitter saying you know ex-con says twitter is like prison yard if you want to succeed your words got to be good or something like that kind of took off there you know but i met a lot of people there people that i still know today and still communicate with that are you know uh, supporters of anything that I want to try to do. And um, so that was a great experience. Meeting Jeff Pulver was a great experience. And through Jeff, I, I, I got to meet a lot of great people. And that night, I met uh, uh, Melissa and AJ, you know, uh, you know them, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I got to meet them, two incredibly people. I mean, these people are just incredible, the things that they do. I mean, they inspired me. You know, just hearing them, hearing their story was just so inspiring. And so uh, I just met a lot of great people. And uh, like I said, these people, they all inspired me with what they were trying to do. It seems like no matter what the genre of all these different people were, it seems like a lot of them were marketing people. But they, they all wanted to do something good. You know, they didn't, they, they didn't just want to make a dollar. They wanted to make a change, you know, and I thought that was wonderful. And um, so after meeting all these people, it's just like I kept getting invited back to New York to speak. And, and I wound up uh, uh, speaking at South by Southwest down in uh, uh, Austin, Texas. And just uh, seems like everybody was wanting me to come up and, you know, talk. And so, uh, it, it was good and, um, it just kept, uh, rolling along like that. And, uh, eventually, um, uh, I got, a uh, a contact from a lady named Jessica Murray. And she said that she had met Jeff Pulver at a uh, an event and um, I believe it was South by Southwest. It was the first one that I was going to go to, but uh, <clears throat> I didn't wind up going to the first one I was invited to because I had a family issue that I had to break away and go take care of. My, my father was really sick. And so I didn't get to go to the first one I was invited to, but I did make it to the second one. <clears throat> but, um, uh, uh, Jeff introduced me to Jessica Murray, who was out of Nashville at that time. Uh, she's in Chicago now, but uh, at that time she was out of Nashville. And I met her and uh, a guy named Ian Rett and uh, met them in a restaurant down in Nashville and told them what it was I was trying to do. And they said, well, dude, you, need a, you guys need a website. <laughs> I'm like, Okay. And so they put together this uh, thing called a designathon, <laughs> and they brought together this group of geeks, man. That uh, in 24 hours they created branding and and helped design a name and and put a website together. And that's how I met Brett. Met Brett Henley there. He was a a, a writer, <laughs> and he wrote content and. Did all kind of great stuff for the designing of the website. It was just terrific. And uh, that's how Youth Turns was uh, uh, birthed. We, it was uh, birthed right there. And so, uh, youthturns.org, they, they helped put that together. Or helped they did put it together. And it was just wonderful. You know, all this young, raw talent coming together to you know, help the kids of the incarcerated. But what I found out, unfortunately, was that uh, uh, there's not a lot of uh, dollars available for, uh, you know, helping these kinds of kids. Uh, You know, if you want to go help some puppies or, you know, stop abuse of animals, there's Tons of dollars, I guess. But when it comes to helping keep kids out of prison, there's just not a lot of funds available for that kind of stuff, especially if you're, you know, a guy that just got out of jail and you're, you know, and uh, you want to start an organization and, and, and get funding. A lot of people aren't in no big hurry to help that out. So my wife and I decided what we would do is we just, you know, we'll go back out on the road we'll put together a trucking company and we'll make money from that. And we'll, we'll spend our own money on it. We'll try to fund it ourselves. And we won't ask anybody for anything. You know, we just, people later on catch on and catch up to what we're doing and if they want to donate, they can, but for right now we'll just, we'll make our own money and we'll fund it ourselves. And, uh, so we set about to do that. And then uh Brett Henley called me in uh I guess it was a couple of years ago. He called calls me up and <clears throat> said he'd like to touch base and you know, he hadn't seen us in a while and see how things are going. And so I met him in a a coffee house over in um uh the village in Nashville and uh place called Fido's. We went over there and had coffee and breakfast and, and from that meeting Brett decided he would like to write a novel about uh, uh, my life and Linda's and how we met and you know it's a, it's a story of reinvention and uh, redemption and forgiveness and love and it's a love story and everything else combined you know it's just a, a, a life of wanting to give back for all the damage that I'd caused earlier in my life. And that's kind of where it is. Wow. Um,
0: Amazing. Really, really, truly just an amazing story. Make sure you tune back in Wednesday for part two of the episode where Andy talks to me all about his insights and lessons learned from the journey of his life. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared.
2: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods